We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Dimitri Bruyas. Good evening. And Nick Aspinwall, also a Taipei-based freelance writer. Great to be here, Gavin. And tonight we'll be discussing new cabinet ministers taking office and stirring controversy from the off, more allegations of no good against the island's far seas fishing fleet, action to stem money laundering ahead of a regional review, illegal logging and a record-breaking sports lottery ticket sales which happened during the just-finished World Cup. And we'll begin with the DPP, though, holding its annual congress this past Sunday, where a bevy of issues were discussed, and one, an issue that many may see as being a rather important one for the party, was simply ignored. And that issue was a proposal to replace the party's pro-Taiwan independence resolutions with a provision stressing the maintenance of the cross-strait status quo. That proposal was put forward by Delegate Xu Han Sheng, who said that the concept echoes mainstream public opinion and will help the DPP consolidate election victories in November's local government ballots. Party chair and President Tsai Ing-wen, though, opted to skip discussion of Xu's proposal, saying instead that a similar proposal had already been discussed by the party's Central Standing Committee. Tsai's decision to skip discussion of the proposal to replace the DPP's pro-independence resolutions was passed by a majority of the party delegates at the Congress. However, Tsai did opt to include debate about the elections, and she told delegates that the November ballots will be, in her words, a battle between proponents and opponents of reform. Tsai talked up reforms the party has managed to pass and others that remain up for review. And she also criticised the KMT, saying that the party had focused on China and failed to tackle much-needed domestic reform programmes. Tsai also said that the party now has trouble communicating with young people. That was as a bit of a surprise. And she went on to say that since it took power in 2016, she believes many young voters have been disappointed at the progress and scale of reforms undertaken by the administration and she called on party members to work to ensure that young people have the government's full support so dimitri where should we begin there let's begin with the omission of the discussion on the pro-taiwan independence resolutions a surprise or not a surprise uh, we've heard of this issue so many times, so I'm not surprised at all. Uh, I think it's too late. I think that's the the biggest the, the, le- the elections are coming very, very fast. So it's a bit too late to replace such and to introduce this uh, pro-independence resolution again in the agenda. So um, we understand the need to reach to grassroots report or to grassroots supporters now. But it might be too late to give the impression that you want to reach to China now. Um, I think there's, it's the, they're in a they're in a place where maintaining the status quo is um, there's really no reason to do anything else. You don't see um, candidates from the KMT, KMT or from the MPP coming up and raising a huge challenge at this point. I don't see why the DPP shouldn't just um, maintain their current status quo. However, it is just like you said, Gavin, it's um, raising a huge issue where young people are very disillusioned with not just the DPP, but the state of Taiwanese politics as a whole. And I don't really know how that's going to be rectified. But what about the pro-independence clause? I mean, do you think the pro? Do you think the DPP should continue to say we're pro-independent, or they should cancel that and say, oh, you know, the, the status quo is actually okay? Well, it seems like they've been trying to have it both ways, and I don't see why they would do anything else. It's going to, if they abandon their pro-independence position, that's going to be, um, 
it's going to be disastrous for them. And I think what we're probably going to see is at least until the November elections that they're just going to um, keep um, keep trying to have it both ways and going right down the middle. But, I mean, Dimitri, do you think the party could could have it both ways? It seems, I mean, they want their cake and they want to eat it. I think they're trying to do it, but it's very complicated. Uh, first, I would say that whether you uh, introduce this pro-independence resolution again in the agenda, it won't change the impression most um, voters have of the DPP. So... Um, maybe from the DPP perspective, they want to show that they don't want to compromise. And it's also very important when you appeal to your grassroots supporters that you don't compromise and you show them that we're having a tough time, but we're not compromising on on these major and very important uh, issues so that um, you won't voters to keep you know supporting you in the future now um there was another issue you we we talked before about the young people and how they uh, do they still support the dpp today that was quite interesting because of course the Mm. dpp traditionally a young people's party one could argue uh it is i think it still is but the difference is uh as an opposition when you're in the opposition uh, maybe uh, you want to show that uh, you want to change a lot of things and you say and you keep repeating that you will not compromise, you will never compromise. But once you're in power, if you want to achieve uh, some of the, you know, the goals you set uh, in before, you need, you start, you need to start compromising on a few things. And for the younger people who are, um, I think, uh, really into uh, Taiwan independence, they would see if the DPP changed its stance again, I think they would see, they would be worried that, okay, uh, why did I vote for you if you keep changing your, your stance? We pre, pretty much, it's pretty clear that the DPP is much more pro-independence, but they don't need to repeat it all the time. That's very true. Um, that's yeah. That's a very good point. Now that the DPP is in power, you're going to see them maintaining this pro-independent stance, but not doing it um, with the same vigor that they did in the opposition. So naturally, that's going to turn off a lot of young people. From my time in Taiwan, and I haven't been here that long, but I've seen just a lot of a lot of disillusioned young people. But at the same time, you can expect that from a party that's in power, and you don't really see um, grassroots movements that have a serious chance of making an electoral impact taking off. So as far as I'm concerned, at least until the November elections, where um, as of now, the DPP is pretty much expected to consolidate um, what they have. We'll see if that really happens. But there's no real reason for the DPP to broadcast their pro-independent stance in the way that they did when they were in the opposition. And what about the reforms, Nick? I mean, obviously, the government have been pushing reforms. And obviously, television, news, they look very unpopular from that. So do you think the reform, these reforms, as in the pension reform and other reforms, will affect the vote for the party in the November election? Well, it depends if, if KMT candidates can actually make a position, um, come out with a position that res- that resonates. The reforms are very unpopular, um, very technocratic, we could say. But um, at this point, once again, these are the sacrifices that you probably make as a ruling party. The DPP has certainly yeah, had to make a lot of compromises, but it's natural. And I think that they may have an electoral impact, but um, I don't think it's anything that we couldn't have expected. In the survey you just mentioned, actually, I think um, it was said that the DPP is seen as a party who is who has successfully pushed for reforms. 
they've had some issues in uh, improving the state of the economy and and solving some of the problems. They, you know, they maybe the issues they raised before the election. But for the reforms, uh, most people agree that the DPP has pushed for lots of reforms over the last two, two years. Now, uh, to me, the biggest challenge for the DPP uh, before the election, after the election, for them now, it's to give seats to the young people who wants to join the party. They received a lot of support from very young, you know, supporters who occupied the parliament back then. But the election is a chance for these young people to get involved into politics and also join the elections. Now, like most parties in Taiwan, the, one of the problems, what we've seen over the last few years is that uh, older um, legislators tend to uh, push for their children to take over their seat when later they retire. I would love to see, again, more reforms, new reforms, and even the DPP giving a chance to very young, you know, young Taiwanese people to, you know, to join the election in the name of the party. But do you think these reforms will hurt their vote in November? Some of the reforms, yes, my, uh, uh, hurt uh, uh, their chance to be uh, re-elected. There were some issues about like working hours. Uh, there were some protests about that. So uh, the situation hasn't improved so far. So yes, there, might, there are still a lot of issues. Moving on, and new cabinet ministers took office this Monday and a couple of them caused controversy within hours of being sworn in for making statements that some folks took issue with. One of those was the new National Palace Museum director, Chen Chi Nan, who outlined his vision of turning the museum into a Taiwan-centric establishment, saying that he will try to help people who believe in localization accept the concept that the museum belongs to Taiwan and he will try to minimize all related disputes. However, Chen also told reporters that he believes the museum as it is now is a Chinese enclave and not part of Taiwan. And he went on to say that he plans to reinterpret the objects on display and ensure that exhibitions tell the history of East Asia from a Taiwanese perspective. Needless to say, some people were rather angered by talk of a Taiwan-centric museum and especially mention of a Chinese enclave. And Chen has been asked to further explain his plans for the museum before he takes any action. Action. Meanwhile, the appointment of Justice Minister Tsai Ching Shang took a turn when he refused to mention his ideas about capital punishment. Of course, capital punishment is a bit of an issue here, with some calling it for it to be scrapped and some calling it for it to be carried out more regularly. And a China Times newspaper poll that ran the following day after the new Justice Minister erred on the caution when asked about capital punishment showed that 80% of respondents supported the death sentence and 86% urged the execution of prisoners on death row as soon as possible. Now of course that second question is related to the unofficial suspension on carrying out death sentences that's currently in place. Now for his part Sai said that he needs to consider the facts and public opinion before making any decision on the matter and if all those wasn't enough problems for two new ministers a third new minister, Transport Minister Wu Hongmo sent Taiwan Railways Administration unions all a flutter when he told reporters that the government could turn the administration into a corporation. Now, railway union representatives were left aghast by such talk and they were quick to accuse the minister of seeking to first 
corporatised the network before privatising it. And union officials went so far as to say that such a move would lead to a public safety crisis. Now, the proposal to corporatise the TRA was first announced by the government last month, and officials have said that a time frame for change could be released within the next six months. So, Dimitri, there we have three new ministers all causing a bit of controversy. Now, let's start with Mr National Palace Museum Director Chen Chi Nan. So, Taiwan-centric Chinese enclave localization. Well, that's a very difficult topic. I mean, the localization of Chinese artifact, I mean, that sounds very, very complicated. Um, the museum is a major tourist attraction in Taiwan. Millions travel all the way to Taiwan to visit this museum each year. They, I don't think, you know, they travel to see those um, artifacts, famous artifacts. And I, 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 it would be a pity to tell these people that once they arrive in Taiwan, you say we changed the program and now it's just about local and Taiwan, uh, you know, artifacts about Taiwan. I do understand that we need to long, I mean, young people, but as well as uh, foreigners visiting Taiwan need to know more and learn more about Taiwan. But these are separate issues. Maybe you, maybe we can increase the visibility of you know the Taiwan history artifacts about Taiwan. But we should keep the National Palace Museum as we know it now exactly. This we shouldn't change it. Absolutely, very strong language, and I agree completely with Dimitri. I think that. Um, I think that when you come to Taiwan for the first time, you want to get a sense of its history, and Taiwan should not um, run away from its history. It should put it on display. If you're going to present Taiwan for what it is now, I think that um, the comments about, for example, showcasing Taiwan's aboriginal history and culture, this is a great thing to do, but it doesn't need to become a polarized topic, and it's unfortunate if it does get politicized. Um, I think you can absolutely have it both ways. And then obviously he'll face a lot of opposition if he does try to change the way that the museum does its business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the uh, that was the point of the second uh, museum they opened in in southern Taiwan, and that for that museum the emphasis was more on you know the history of Taiwan and artifacts about you know the the whole region. So maybe yes, we can have more exhibitions like that. Uh, in Taipei, but you should give you know those visitors like options. You can visit a museum about Taiwan, or you can just learn more about Chinese history. There is nothing wrong to you know about about that. Well, let's move on to the Justice Minister Nick, and of course, Tsai Ching Shang avoided the question about what to happen with the death sentence. That's always going to be a tricky topic. Um, as you mentioned, Gavin, there seems to be strong public support for the death penalty, but I'm never quite sure of the methodology of those polls. Of course, they can come out at a certain time after the horrific cases that we've seen in the news recently. Um, the fact is that most progressive liberal um, democracies in the world have moved away from the death penalty, and it's another issue that the DPP may not want to take a strong stance on, but I think that a lot of its young voter base on the line is going to um, an anti-death penalty stance is going to resonate with them. Yeah, that I, I do. I do see. I, I mean, I can hear. I can see that capital punishment here is kind of is kind of popular. Everybody has an opinion on it. Everybody's an expert. Whenever you ask someone, 
they just come up with a lot of examples about things that should we should do or we should have been done about it. I think we do need uh, more debate on this issue, but it's a very emotional one. We need a rational debate on this particular topic. But to get a, t- a debate like that, we need more critical thinking. And that's, I think, what is lacking here in the education system. We do not teach children to critical thinking we do not ask them their opinion they everybody has an opinion but it's you should look into issues behind these opinions and go deeper than just i think i think that and i think that um it takes time uh, maybe taiwan is not ready yet but i'm confident that in the near future more and more people will just start asking questions should we keep on you know killing people like that there must be a reason. I mean, there must be a reason why countries like, especially in Europe, they, they, they're done with uh, capital punishment, but they haven't seen an increase in, in crime. So um, we need to start this debate, and I hope that we can start anytime soon. Right, that critical thinking in Taiwanese society. Of course, um, that's part of why we're here, Dimitri. That's why we're here as journalists. Um, and I think um, I, I think that you do see it. I think that you do see a lot more debate, a lot more young Taiwanese people who are you know, willing to take on these issues and really look at the pros and cons. But the death penalty is tricky. Um, this is not just in Taiwan. This is everywhere in the world. It's always going to be an emotional issue. It's very hard to take emotion out of the equation. So um, I think that just like you said, um, when you look at the rational debate for the death penalty, there's a reason why European countries have eliminated it and have you know not seen any increases in crime. I think that once again, that's it's um, down the line. It probably will resonate with young people to move towards eliminating capital punishment. Right. Finally, the new transport minister: Should the Taiwan Railways Administration be privatized or corporized? Then. It's a tough question too. Um, to me, uh, privatizing the uh, the railway uh, administration, the, the railway system, if you want to make it more competitive and if you want to open the infrastructures to other companies with experience and who can maybe help in improving the whole railway system, I might be confident that it's positive things but if you just want to privatize one company and that would have in the end a, a monopoly in the re, a monopoly in the re, in, in, the, in that specific market i don't think it would be beneficial for the taiwanese people because the point of privatizing uh, the railway system would be to decrease the price that users pay uh, on transportation but when you look at the, uh, for example, the high-speed rail, the cost of transportation it's still extremely high, even though it's a private company. So there is no competition. That's the main issue. So the point of privatizing the company would be for the users to see an improvement. I mean, to see a decrease in price. But if it's not the case, I don't see the point. Well, employees are not going to be happy about this, and I don't know if um, I mean if you are in the Taiwan Railways Union and you're looking at this proposal being floated you're probably thinking where is the strong track record of protecting employees if we go towards privatization what's going to happen to us in their case the new minister has um, not really made any sort of case of course it's way too early in the process but it's going to be hard to convince employees that this is something that's going to help them 
Taiwan's fast seas fishing fleet was back in the news this week for all the very wrong reasons once again, with the International Labour Organisation and the Fisheries Agency appearing at odds over why a Kaohsiung-based fishing boat became the first vessel to be detained for violating a work in fishing convention, which was actually issued by the International Labour Organisation in November last year. Now, the Fisheries Agency says the Fusheng 11 was detained in Cape Town, South Africa, mainly because it was listing to one side and its rescue equipment failed to meet the convention's requirements. The agency also stressed that the boat was found to have not violated any labour abuse laws. However, that statement appeared to contradict a news release from the International Labour Organisation, which stated that inspectors from the South African Maritime Safety Authority found many problems with working conditions, including poor accommodation, insufficient food, poor safety and health conditions on board the ship. Now, the ILO also said that only two of the crew members had work agreements, there was no crew list, the life buoys were rotten and the anchors were not operational and one was missing. So, Nick, there you go. Not good news for Taiwan's fast seas fleet once again. Not at all, and unfortunately, not much of a surprise. So the ILO convention that you referred to, Gavin, um, it's a fairly new convention that so far has only been ratified by a handful of countries, um, I believe 10. And they just happened to be in South Africa when they got pulled over, so to speak, and that's so- South Africa signed it. <laughs> what a shame. That's right, yeah, not, yeah, not much, um, yeah. Pretty unlucky for them, but also to be expected because South Africa, on that list of 10 countries, South Africa is the only major port port country that Taiwanese vessels visit, um, which has signed the convention. So at this point, um, they often yeah, they often visit ports in the South Pacific, um, in the Indian Ocean, where the inspections are very, very limited. And Taiwan's fisheries agency does send expe- inspectors out there. But rights groups have been alleging for ages now, um, as well as the U.S. Department of State, that these inspections are not at all thorough and that labor abuses are being tolerated constantly. So what we're going to see down the line is are other countries going to ratify this convention? Um, Thailand at the moment is in talks to ratify the convention. A lot of the seafood that Taiwan sells is um, sold on to Thai processors. And if those processors do, they're facing a lot of pressure from their own government and from retailers who buy from them. If they start pushing down the supply chain for labor reforms, that's going to come back onto Taiwanese vessels, and that could make a major um, impact in the domestic um, seafood industry. Although, of course, Dimitri, the fisheries agency seems to endlessly defend the far seas fleet from similar allegations. I found it pretty ironic because um, Taiwan is, and we keep hearing that Taiwan wants to be part of the international community. Taiwan wants to join the UN, blah, blah, blah. But I think the first thing we should do is to come to comply with such, you know, legislation like work in fishing convention. Uh, being part of it, that's, that's the meaning of being part of the international community. Now, Taiwan and maybe Taiwan, um, uh, the authorities maybe should enforce these you know conventions and regulations and 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 stop you know complaining that they're not part of the international community it, being part of the international community starts in taiwan so we should comply by these uh, regulations absolutely and that's a major point of debate internally right now um the fisheries agency has been resistant to it why they have um it's anyone's guess some people will allege um especially those in um in advocacy groups 
Um, some will allege that um, inside the fisheries agency, there is um, a high representation of industry interests. Um, many allege that the fisheries agency does not have the capacity to oversee um, working conditions, which is probably true. I think a lot of people in the FA would would um, admit to that themselves. But there also is a question of how easy is it for Taiwan to comply with these um, international conventions. As far as the Work and Fishing Convention is concerned, Taiwan could certainly domestically implement this work and fishing convention, but a big part of that is that compliant countries are subject to investigations by the ILO. However, the ILO refuses to recognize Taiwan and, as a result, would not um, carry out those investigations within Taiwan. So there's a significant opposition saying that, well, the international community is not making it easy for us to comply. Whether that's an excuse is up to you, but so, um, it was, is a major issue. Nick, I mean, that's quite interesting. So the, the ILO <clears throat> doesn't recognize Taiwan, but it wants the fisheries agency here in Taiwan to adhere to their convention. Well, hard to say, really. Um, I think that they would, I think they would like to, but of course the ILO is kind of itself um, in the same position as every other country that um, um, conducts informal diplomacy with Taiwan. So there is, um, I think there is opportunity for back-channel negotiation here. And some interests in Taiwan have tried to do that. Um, at the same time, I believe just this year and also last year, um, representatives from Taiwan, um, people who are involved in the fishing industry, have tried to attend the ILO annual convention, um, the annual conference in Geneva, and were not allowed in. Well, I'm sure we'll be talking about this again because it doesn't seem to go away, which is rather annoying. But there you go. Anyway, the Financial Supervisory Commission announced this week that data shows that 16 banks have been fined for violating money laundering laws one year after amendments came into effect. Now, the FSC says the total fine stood at 8.4 million NT, and the release of the figures comes as the government is readying itself for a visit by the Asia-Pacific group on money laundering at the end of this year. Lawmakers earlier this month, of course, also passed the largest changes to the Company Act in 17 years. And that was also part of efforts to strengthen anti-money laundering mechanisms here in Taiwan. Now, some have said the revamping of the Company Act is a critical factor to the Asia-Pacific Group on Money Laundering's assessment, which will take place, like I said, later this year. And I spoke with regular ICRT commentator who has many years' experience as in-house consul at international banking institutions about the issues in question. Good evening, Ross. Good evening. So the Company Act was revised recently, of course, on July the 7th, in fact, and the government have said that it's a critical factor in sort of clamping down on money laundering and making sure that Taiwan passes the upcoming review. Well, Taiwan has been the target of criticism in the international financial regulatory community for a number of years over deficiencies in anti-money laundering. There's two aspects to look at this, Gavin. One is, are the laws and regulations strong enough? Are they robust? Are they clear? Can they be implemented? The second aspect is the culture, the culture of compliance. Now, I would argue that for many years, Taiwan has actually had good laws and regulations uh, on the books. The problem is the culture of compliance or the lack thereof. It's a willingness of staff to ask questions about transactions, to identify suspicious transactions, and to 
escalate it internally within an organization. Now, that last aspect is the problem that many Taiwan financial institutions have repeatedly have with very large transactions that eventually get into the news, result in regulatory action both in Taiwan or overseas. And we have to keep in mind that Taiwan organizations, including business organizations, tend to be very top-down, and junior people sometimes are very reluctant to identify to their supervisors that they see something suspicious. And we have seen situations in Taiwan where uh, questionable transactions that might involve money laundering or other types of corporate misdeeds are not escalated for further review because it's clear that uh, the the other side of the transaction is either a connected person to the financial institution in question, or they're a favored client, they're close to the uh, group that controls the financial institution, whatever it is. So we see that the culture is sometimes the problem. So it doesn't matter how great the laws and regulations are. And in fact, Taiwan was one of the first countries in Asia to actually have a written anti-money laundering law, a dedicated law, as opposed to specific, I'm sorry, separate regulations on the issue. Taiwan passed a dedicated anti-money laundering law in the 1990s, uh, far, far ahead of other Asian jurisdictions. Uh, but, but then it's the culture of compliance or the lack thereof that is repeatedly the problem in Taiwan. But, I mean, who is it that's money laundering here? I mean, is it, is it criminals from the Middle East, South America, or is it local people that are basically just hiding their money? That's a very good question, and the the most recent report that was issued by the Executive UN's Anti-Money Laundering Office uh, in May of this year identified uh, around eight examples, broadly speaking, not specific cases, of the type of money laundering that we see here in Taiwan. And some of that is uh, as a result of criminal activities such as drug trafficking, telecommunications fraud. Uh, so the things that we as a public might easily understand are the proceeds of criminal activity. And then the other types of anti-money laundering might be tax evasion related, things like that. However, the key thing is, to, and to answer your question, most of the anti-money laundering activity we see here in Taiwan is as a result of the activities of locally-based Taiwanese individuals or Taiwanese companies. It's very rare that foreign parties would use Taipei as a location to launder money. Now, sometimes the money laundering that occurs in Taiwan by Taiwanese individuals or organizations is as a result of criminal activity that takes place outside Taiwan. So, for example, selling narcotics to Philippines, North Korea, Australia, and, and trying to launder the proceeds here because the people come from here. And it's a place they're very familiar with uh, as a location to launder the money. Uh, so there is a cross-border aspect sometimes to the money laundering activity. Uh, but it's pretty rare to see terrorists from other places or uh, narcotics trafficking organizations from other places coming to Taiwan and bringing their cash from outside Taiwan into Taiwan for purposes of that. That being said, uh, for public relations purposes, when the government in Taiwan talks about its AML, anti-money laundering efforts, very often you will hear the words anti-terrorism financing, and we're doing a lot on anti-terrorism financing. That's mostly a public relations exercise, because the key part, or, or, or the most of the and the money laundering activity that takes place here in Taiwan is as a result of illicit activities by Taiwanese individuals or Taiwanese organizations. 
Right, obviously the group is coming at the end of this year, and if, if they go away saying that Taiwan hasn't done enough to stop money laundering or to enact proper anti-money laundering mechanisms, how do you think this could affect Taiwan's banking internationally? Well, the result would probably be that Taiwan would pass more regulations and potentially more laws, probably issue more fines, as, as the regulator has been doing over the course of this year, and, and engage in other corrective activities to satisfy the requirements of, of the Asia-Pacific Anti-Money Laundering Organization. That, that really would be the, the first step. Uh, it wouldn't change how international businesses, for example, view Taiwan, uh, companies that already have operations here are not going to reduce the scope of their operations simply because Taiwan gets a, a bad grade in the money laundering uh, review. What might happen, actually, though, is it does increase the cost of doing business here because if, for example, uh, we're, we're in Hong Kong or Singapore or London and New York and we're transacting with a financial institution in Taiwan or a corporate in Taiwan, and we see that the international organizations have given Taiwan bad grades, then we as a counterparty might have to do additional work, and we may be required to do that by our own internal regulations or the local regulations by a government in those locations. So there are compelling reasons for Taiwan to satisfy the requirements of this review, and if there are any shortcomings that are identified, then Taiwan uh, has a lot of motivation to address those shortcomings, but ultimately it will uh, increase the cost of doing business. Well, I mean, could it stymie local banks' plans to move into foreign markets? Because, of course, we have the new southbound policy, and lots of banks here are looking to move into Southeast Asian countries. Well, it sometimes does come up when a regulator in another location, again, as, as I mentioned in the early example, which was transaction-based, a uh, regulator will also look at who are you, who is this financial institution that is coming into my country and wants to either expand uh, by uh, organic growth, building its own organization, or by acquiring an existing organization. And yes, certainly the regulators in those countries will look at the grades that Taiwan as a jurisdiction has received from these kinds of ratings organizations. So, that, again, that's one more compelling reason why Taiwan will want to satisfy the requirements. It, it, it raises another interesting question, which is sometimes when international rating organizations, whether it's for business environment or corruption, uh, give Taiwan a bad grade, we sometimes see a, a negative reaction here, right? We, the reaction might be, oh, well, you didn't talk to enough people. You didn't understand our efforts. You didn't really take the time to uh, understand our laws and regulations. Uh, so sometimes there's this kind of pushback from Taiwan when it receives a negative ranking by an international organization. But this one is, is, is so sensitive and it impacts uh, so many business activities that, uh, again, it's really important for Taiwan to comply with the requests that uh, the organization makes for any corrective measures. Uh, but let's hope that doesn't happen. Let's hope that Taiwan does pass the review, given the actions that have occurred over the last few years, such as revising the money laundering law, revising the company law, additional training for bank staff that has taken place over the last few years. Many uh, financial institution employees here in Taiwan have actually taken exams to receive international certification in identifying transactions that are suspicious. So all of these things taken together hopefully will lead Taiwan to pass this year's review. And there'll be no embarrassments like the mega bank embarrassment in New York? 
Well, uh, here's the thing, Gavin, and this goes back to the issue of a culture of compliance. Given the repeated times that these incidents have occurred, when I say repeated, I mean uh, not just the very specific money laundering, but the other examples that I cited where there's a suspicious transaction involving maybe a connected party that does not get a, a identified for further review. So money gets lent, and, and it's clear that it shouldn't have been because the, the, the borrower uh, really didn't have the ability to repay, uh, but it was uh, someone close to the people who control the bank, and the money gets lent. You know, we've seen so many situations of bad behavior by financial institutions here in Taiwan. So to answer your question, Gavin, no matter what uh, marks and grades the Taiwan gets in this year's review, what other efforts have been made to change the laws and regulations, train staff, I guarantee you, if within the next few years, you and I will be having a conversation on Taiwan this week about some kind of situation at a financial institution where money shouldn't have been lent or some other kind of bad behavior. And, and it's just inevitable because it's a, it's a compliance culture issue that will take a long time to fix. That was me in conversation with regular ICRT commentator Ross Feingold. And illegal logging remains a big problem here in Taiwan as so-called mountain rats seek out indigenous cypress trees to both fell and sell. And one of my guests this evening has this week had an article published in The Diplomat about how the death of a Vietnamese mountain rat has recently highlighted the problem once again. So, Nick. Yes, just as you mentioned, Gavin, this has been a persistent issue. Um, it's something that gets... I would say um, it's it's had a steady amount of media coverage. It seems like every every so often you'll get some, you'll see a report of um, a group of poachers um, or mountain rats being arrested. Um, there were two hundred and thirty nine arrested in two thousand seventeen. So that's every week about four or five poachers are being arrested in the forests of Taiwan. There's a constant market for this wood. Um, it's Taiwanese buyers um, at open-air wood markets, places like Sanyi and Miaoli. Um, but also, there's the mainland Chinese market is very robust. Um, Chinese tourists who come here will buy the wood. It's been treasured for decades by regional buyers. There have also been cases of smugglers trying to export the wood. Um, Customs has um, here in Taiwan has caught a few cases, and I'm sure that there are many more that we don't know about. So the true shame of this, which I explore in my article, is just as you said, Gavin, a Vietnamese worker was um, lost his life while he was um, when he was apprehended by police. And in the last few years, a lot of poaching is increasingly being done by undocumented migrant workers, usually from Vietnam. So historically, the poaching industry has is controlled by businessmen, um, possibly with ties to uh, ties to local gangs. And they have increasingly been recruiting migrant workers to be their foot soldiers, to go out into the forests and be that first line of defense against the police. So in my article, I explored whether really law enforcement agencies here in Taiwan are going after the, the people who are really behind the poaching industry rather than just the migrant workers, um, the undocumented workers who are out there in the mountains. And nobody's really sure that they are. It seems like um, more and more Vietnamese undocumented workers are being arrested, yet the industry is extremely healthy and lucrative. And the crazy part is it's if you want to buy this illegally poached cypress wood, just hop on a bus to Sanyi. It's it's open for sale, and there's very little enforcement at the point of sale. Of course, Sanyi, a big, big tourist area for wood carving. 
So do you think many tourists go there and are, are unaware that this is actually they, they could be buying things that are actually um, stolen, poached, illegally felled? It's hard to say. I think that the serious buyers are aware. Um, I think that um, I think that some buyers uh, may not be, and there are a lot of fraudulent. Um, yeah, in this case, like not real cypress wood, sellers will try and pass it off as cypress. Um, lots of little tricks that they'll do for that. Yes, yeah, certainly. Hinoki cypress is a um, has been coveted by buyers in the region for for decades. Um, it was originally exported to Japan and to build temples there um, during the time of Japanese colonization. So it's. Um, I think there's plenty of knowledge of what's really happening, and it's. The Forestry Bureau here in Taiwan has talked about increasing their licensing programs, but so far their their proposals have not exactly been comprehensive. Um, it doesn't seem like there is a serious proposal to really wipe out illegally sourced wood from the market. I have a question. Sorry. Um, you, you mentioned awareness about the buyers, but what about the uh, foreign workers? Are they aware of what they're doing? That it, Do they know that it's illegal? Do they get proper information before entering Taiwan about things that you should and you shouldn't do? That's a great question, Dimitri. Um, in many cases, they are probably completely unaware. Um, they come into, most of the time, they come into the country legally and for a myriad of reasons. Um, mostly because they end up in jobs where they are, um, in many cases, they're not being treated well or they're paying very high recruitment fees to their brokerage agencies in their home country, in this case, usually Vietnam. In the case of the Vietnamese worker who died, his story is that he was unable to make enough money to pay back this third-party agent who sent him to Taiwan Um The, the dollar total that he owed, um, we're not completely sure, but usually it's between four and seven thousand US dollars that they have to pay back. And if you're making minimum wage here at a Taiwanese factory and taking out a portion of your salary, it's going to take a long time to pay that back. But do you think that maybe uh, immigration, the national immigration uh, agency in Taiwan, could do more to provide proper information in those migrants' uh, you know native languages about? especially mm -hmm. for logging and explaining clearly why it's illegal and what are the mm -hmm. risks of working for companies like that. Absolutely, that's something that um yeah, that's something that they have explored a bit, but um but advocates for migrant workers consistently push them to do more. They have done things like open an information booth in the airport. The thing is that when when migrant workers come here, they really are under the sphere of influence of their employer and their recruiter. And um, often they gravitate towards these um, towards these poaching jobs because they they network with others who have done the same thing. In Vietnam, um, yeah, something I consistently heard is that in Vietnam, illegal poaching is not a very serious crime. Um, the penalties are much lower, so they probably do not understand in Taiwan how severely it's being treated here, where you can get a prison sentence of around five years. Um, they floated even longer sentences. But you'll go to prison for a number of years and then be deported. So in many cases, yeah, they are not aware of how severe it is. And I think that there needs to be more. Um, the Ministry of Labor could do more to raise awareness here in Taiwan. Also, I don't see the, the clearly the line between what is legal and illegal uh, for logging. Uh, it's As you mentioned, it's weird that you can go to an open market and buy products that you barely know where they are from. And uh, and maybe they're actually uh, uh, 
illegal products. So why is the line between what is legal and illegal so blurred here? That's that's another good question. It can be quite confusing because there are legal cypress and incense cedar. This is another major wood um, coveted by poachers. There are legal products that you can buy on the markets. Um, for example, before 1991, there was not a ban on logging of natural forests. Since that year, there has been a complete ban. A lot of these trees are over 100, sometimes over 1,000 years old, and they're endangered. So... Um, so, of course, um, environmentalists want to protect them. But trees that are knocked down by typhoons, for example, are considered legal. And the, um, the government actually holds auctions for this, um, for this legally sourced wood that, um, that wood artists can buy. However, this is not a consistent enough supply. So if you, I mean, Sanyi is a very competitive place for, um, for wood art sellers. There are hundreds of shops there. And when I went there, um, shop owners told me, um, that they bought their wood from poachers. Um, and it's, it's the only way for them to stay in business. So when you go, um, to answer your question, Dimitri, there's not a very comprehensive licensing system. Mm -hmm. So the Forestry Bureau has said that they would um, introduce a system that will certify wood as legally sourced. However, the system is not mandatory. There will not be a license on every single product in Sanyi. And... Furthermore, buyers don't necessarily care that much. Um, they don't need to see a license. Okay. Um, transactions are conducted with cash. And once you have a product, it's going to be hard for anyone to say this is illegal wood. Mm -hmm. So there's really, um, there's still not enough, um, really serious enough um, level of enforcement. The Forestry Bureau floats like, you know, things that they want to do in the future, and maybe this will change the course. But um, at the moment, it's just a big problem where over 200 poachers in each of the last two years have been arrested. And a lot of times it, it is undocumented workers who have no idea what they've got themselves into. Anyway, we should move on from illegal logging and move yep. on to the World Cup, which, of course, has come and gone. And Taiwan was once again gripped by soccer fever in a sort of way as legal betting on games hit a new record high. According to the Taiwan Sports Lottery, ticket sales during the competition saw the company generate 7 billion NT in sales over the duration of the event. Now, bets exceeded 400 million NT per game in the semi-finals, and Sunday's final between France and Croatia created a record 850 million NT in betting slip sales. Now the 7 billion NT dollars broke the lottery's own record for any individual sports event which was set in 2014 at the last World Cup and their sales then totaled a mere 2.4 billion NT. Now the National Sports Lottery Company is now expected to inject 700 million NT of its takings into the Sports Development Fund. Now there was much talk of who won, but the biggest winner apparently was a guy from Taichung who apparently spent 5,000 NT during the World Cup buying lottery tickets and he ended up walking away with 1.17 million NT. So did you make any bets, Dimitri, during the World Cup? Legally, of course, legally. Le only talking legal bets, Dimitri. <laughs> um, yeah, I usually we bet with friends, you know, during the games. But um, I think the real question here is... 
whether football will still be popular next month when the when the new season starts in Europe. Uh, whenever something is popular here, we see a lot of people embracing it, watching football games without having a clue what's going on. Now, next month, the show, you know, the the, the new season starts. So let's let's wait until next month to see if like people still, you know, uh, bet online on, on the games. Um, this is uh, was not just uh, the, the situation. It was not just the case in Taiwan. Actually, this year was a, especially uh, online betting was uh, extremely popular. Like in France, uh, I saw a report saying that uh, um, the online betting uh, was up to there was up to six hundred and ninety million euros uh, mm. uh, of betting online in, in France only. This is unprecedented, with a fifty percent increase from the, uh, the the Euro 2016 in just two years. So it's it's getting very popular here, it's getting popular everywhere, and it's going to get worse and worse. I guess that's quite interesting, Dimitri. Well, will the local people bet on the European soccer? You won't know, will you? You're from North America. <laughs> <laughs> and not much of a betting man, Gavin. Um, <laughs> yeah, I th- I, I'll, um, I'll likely pass on that. But, um, but yeah, we'll see. Um, that's interesting that online betting really has taken off so much. Um, hopefully, in the case of France, they were betting on their own team this year. Um, well, they weren't but, betting yeah. on the English. I think we can safely say they weren't betting on the <laughs> yeah, That might have got them a bit farther than <laughs> We've in got past a lot years, of players <laughs> In the English league, so I, I, I would bet on the English next year, no problem. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Dimitri Burias. Have a nice weekend, everyone. And Nick Aspinwall. Thanks for having me, Gavin. Have a nice weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.